Good morning. I knew if we waited long enough, the weather would finally come. I'm glad to have you here this morning. When last we saw Moses, he was distraught and frustrated with God. Moses was comfortable living in Midian with his wife and children. He took care of his father-in-law's flock and nothing more was expected of him. As a younger man, he attempted to deliver his people from their Egyptian oppression and failed. His failure was the reason for being in Midian. All desire to be the deliverer was long forgotten. But God had other plans. The Lord called an 80-year-old Moses to lead God's people from their oppression. You come to a certain age where you think you've become too old for things. If the United States were to reinstitute a draft for military service, I wouldn't be worried about them pulling my name. They don't want me. The Lord wanted Moses to be the mouthpiece in leading the children of Israel out of the land of their captivity and into the land of promise, and he wanted Moses to be 80 years old when he did it. Moses believes that him leading the people out is a bad idea. To quote Moses, in, in Exodus 4.13, he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And that's after giving four other excuses before. But God didn't listen to Moses' wise counsel. He insisted that Moses do it. Reluctantly, we saw last week, Moses obeyed God's command. When he told Pharaoh the request of the Lord, Pharaoh didn't listen. Remember I said last week that, uh, that Exodus 5.2 is the, the key verse to understanding the book of, of Exodus. And it's when, when Moses says, this is what the Lord says, uh, let the people go to, uh, to go to a, a feast, to sacrifice for the Lord, to worship the Lord, to serve the Lord. And verse 2, it said that Pharaoh responded with, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and more, moreover, I won't let the people go. Not only did Pharaoh not let the people go worship the Lord as the Lord requested, Pharaoh added to the Israelites' workload. Here's the command that Pharaoh gives to the taskmasters concerning the Israelites. In Exodus 5, 7 through 9, he says, he tells them, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go, offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier workloads be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. I had a horrible job in the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of of college. Uh, it was the first job I ever had where I had nightmares about going to work. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Uh, it is tough when, when you wake up every day, have to go to this job that's just going to crush you. And, uh, and it, was, it was miserable. 
Uh, I worked at a car parts factory in Michigan, which is not unusual to work at a car factory in Michigan. Uh, the factory did the final assembly of chrome parts that then were shipped out to the big three car companies. So the factory I worked at made dozens of different parts, each, each chrome plated, and we did final assembly uh, and had them shipped out. But here's the point of that, is each part that you made had what they called rate. And it was really important to make rate. And so every day it would, it would tell you at this particular part, here's how many parts you need to complete by the end of your shift. And uh, my shift was from 10 at night till 6 in the morning. Uh, and, uh, but I made a shift premium of 10 cents. So worth it. Uh, it was important to make rate. It was important to make rate. If a worker consistently failed to make rate, they would be disciplined with an unpaid suspension. Now, I don't know who determined the rate for various parts, but I'm pretty sure they did it in the spirit of Pharaoh because there was no way on some of these parts. If you got on the wrong side of the shift manager, they would place you on a car part that was impossible to make rate. It was impossible. Uh, the manager would leave you there until you either made amends to return to their good side or until you were suspended without pay. I hated that job. But as much as I hated it, at least I never got whipped by the shift manager. That's not so true for the people of, of Israel. When they didn't make rate, they got whipped. The reason I didn't get whipped is I quit before she could do it. <laughs> now, it's, that was... Oh, it was motivation to go back to college. If I had any notion of not going back, that job fixed that. I couldn't imagine working there any longer than I, than I already did. Um, when Moses heard that Pharaoh had increased the misery of the people because of Moses and, <clears throat> and Aaron relying on God's request to let the Israelites leave Egypt to serve the Lord in worship, he cried out to God, accusing God of not listening to Moses' wise counsel. This is what Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 5.22, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is a serious accusation that Moses makes against God. Moses declares that God had done evil evil to his people. He declares that God lacked wisdom in sending Moses for the task of delivering the people. Moses declares that God has not kept his promise to deliver, therefore God is a liar and cannot be trusted. Moses, hero of the faith, right? The fact that God did not strike Moses with a lightning bolt right there is a testament to the patience of God when you hear those accusations that he makes against God. But I will give Moses this credit. At least he said it. How often do I feel that way, but I'm not honest with God and I don't come to him about it? God already knows my heart and my mind, so I'm not hiding it from him. I guess I'm hiding it from you people. But Moses 
went and said these things to the Lord. Psalm 86.15 says this, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Aren't you glad, glad this describes our God? Yeah. In patience and understanding, God answers Moses' accusation. We have a first statement that God makes to Moses in, in chapter 6. Um, and he makes a statement about Pharaoh. What will Pharaoh do and why will Pharaoh do it? So in Exodus 6.1 it says, But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. See, Pharaoh isn't going to just allow the people to go. He's going to encourage them to go. It's going to go from Pharaoh saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and listen to his voice? I'm not going to let the people go. It's going to go from that attitude to Pharaoh saying, please get out of here. Please leave. I want you to leave. What is it going to take to get you to leave? And the reason Pharaoh will drive the people away is because the Lord will break Pharaoh's will with a mighty hand. The Lord will be the cause. God assures Moses that Pharaoh is no match for the mighty hand of God. The problem with Pharaoh is not a problem at all. Pharaoh isn't the issue. Quit worrying about him. That's the, uh, the paraphrase uh, for, uh, that, uh, for me for that verse. Pharaoh is no problem at all. Quit worrying about him. Now that can... For us, because we don't live in that time, you know, we, we hear that statement and we, we go on with it. Who was Pharaoh in the world? Perhaps the most powerful man on earth. And God says about Pharaoh, ain't no thing. No big deal. Quit worrying about what Pharaoh's going to do because I'm, I'm going to turn him. He's going to do exactly what I want him to do, and he's going to do it exactly at the right time. So Moses, don't worry about Pharaoh. What are you worried about this morning? What concerns you this morning? In some ways, we probably face things that are fairly daunting. Some issues that are incredibly difficult, some, some big things. And yet I would think that the Lord's attitude about those things is the same as it was about Pharaoh. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. With my mighty hand, I will accomplish my purpose. Now, God assures Moses that Pharaoh is no match for the mighty hand of God, right? But Moses being distraught has nothing to do with Pharaoh. Now, I think in Moses' mind, it probably had something to do with Pharaoh. I think Pharaoh was, uh, was what he woke up every morning worried about. Uh, what is Pharaoh going to do? What is Pharaoh going to say? 
Is he gonna? Is he gonna take my life? Is he gonna punish my family? You know, there's no limit to what Pharaoh could do. Is that a true statement, though? Yeah. So, Pharaoh really isn't the issue. So, why is Moses despondent? Why is he so exasperated? Why is he so so frustrated that he would make these accusations against God? Here's the reason. He hasn't fully understood the nature and being of God. He doesn't know who God is, not fully. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. To experience the goodness of God, a person must trust God. You can possess the knowledge that God is good like you can know the periodic element chart, like you know the capital of Montana, which is Helena, by the way. Unless you have been to Helena, uh, you can't experience the splendor or feel the spirit of Helena. I haven't been to Helena, so I can't tell you what, it like, what it's like. I saw a picture, seems nice, if you like mountains, and I do. Until you trust God, and place yourself under his protection and depend on him for your redemption, you will never know God. See, this verse in Psalm isn't about mental acuity. It's not about knowledge that you can attain through study. To taste and see that the Lord is good is to experience the goodness of God. There was a day when I watched the Food Network an awful lot. And uh, I always wondered, how was it I was gaining weight by watching the uh, Food Network? It's amazing how that works. Uh, but I can look at things and see that they're good, but does that compare to smelling how good food is? Not at all. Until I came to Louisiana, I never smelled what a boil was like. And now, during certain times of the year, um, during, during Lent, you walk out on a Friday, and what do you smell? Crawfish. And then you start to wonder, how can I get invited? <laughs> and nothing comes to mind, so you just want to maybe visit. Or, I don't know, we'll, we'll come up with something eventually. I've been here 20 years, and I still can't figure out how to, how to do that. Uh, we have to taste and experience that the Lord is good. Uh, that's, that's trusting the Lord. If you don't trust the Lord... You can know some things about God. You can study, you can study uh, a theology book. You can study scripture and you can learn some things about God. But you won't experience God if you don't ever trust him. So once again, God begins to make himself known to Moses. We get to verse 2 of Exodus 6. It said, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There's a, a few things I want to try to, to help you with. Uh, in your Bible, when you are, are reading it, uh, there are times when it has the Lord um, with capital letters, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and, and here's what they're doing with that. When you, when you read, I am the Lord, in your Bible, and it has, it has capital letters, uh, that is the, the name for Lord, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so it, it's that answer. Um, 
uh, again, we don't exactly know how to pronounce Yahweh uh, or Jehovah. Uh, when they write in Hebrew, they don't use vowels. Uh, and so that can make it very difficult without vowels. You know, here in Louisiana, we use vowels left and right, like we don't, they're going out of style or something. But in Hebrew, they didn't, they didn't write the vowels. And so they're trying to figure out how do we write this. And what they did is they took the word um, Adonai, which is another name for God, means God Almighty. Uh, and they said, well, let's take the vowels from Adonai and we'll add those into the, these four consonants given in Yahweh and we'll just go with that, right? But in your Bible, when it has all capital letters, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, when it has Lord in just without all uppercase, that's, that's usually going to be the word Adonai, which is the Lord Almighty. Now, in this passage, and, and we're going through Exodus 6, uh, really, 2 through, through 8, uh, there are a couple of different structural elements of this statement from Yahweh that he makes to Moses. Uh, and we'll look at those in a moment. Uh, but first, let's make sure we understand the significance of the Lord's reminder to Moses of who Yahweh is. This wasn't the first time that the Lord had given Moses the name Yahweh. Back when God first called Moses from the burning bush, Moses asked who should he say sent him to bring the people out from the land. Uh, and, and so back in Exodus 3, 13 through 14, it said, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that's what Yahweh means is I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh or Jehovah means I am. So in Exodus 6-2, God begins by declaring to Moses the same name he gave to Moses uh, when God first called him to this task. Being the I am has great significance. Being the I am means that God is the self-existing one. God is the self-existing one. God exists in and of himself. God is dependent on no one, and everything is dependent on him. God being the I am also means that he is, is self-sufficing. He is sufficient, lacking in nothing. Being the, the I am also means that God is the ever-present one. God is eternal, and is not subject to time in the way you and I are subject to time. God sees everything at once. Uh, when we talk about prophecy, you know what prophecy is? Prophecy is history that hasn't yet happened. Because in God's mind, in God's vision, with God being the I am, he sees it all at the same time. We can't do that. I would describe to you what it's like, but I have no idea what's it, what that is like. I've never been able to do it because I am a created thing, and I'm created in time and space, and life has a sequence to it. Uh, so I can't even tell you what's going to happen later this afternoon. I have no idea. Even right here in the present, if I put my hands behind my back and said, how many fingers do I have holding up? You're in this room, and you couldn't tell me, right? So we are very limited, but God is not limited being the I am. Being the, the significance of God being the I am is that he is the absolute being, working with unbounded freedom <clears throat> in the performance of his promises. 
In verse 3, the Lord makes known another significant point in, him produ- in introducing himself as the I am. Look at Exodus 6.3. He said, excuse me, the Lord said to Moses, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now back in Genesis, the Lord introduced himself as Adonai, which means the mighty one, or God is mighty. But God also gave the patriarchs his name, I am, or Yahweh. In Genesis 13, 4, the Lord said to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord, and it's all capitals, Lord. So, when you look back at Exodus 6, 3, and it says, By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God did make himself known to, to uh, Abraham as the I am. But it wasn't the common way that the Lord introduced himself. It, 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 it was mostly Adonai. Just a couple of times he introduces himself as the I am. Uh, God had given the nation his name, Yahweh, earlier than, than here with Moses. <clears throat> so what does God mean <coughs> when he tells Moses that he had not made himself known to the patriarchs as Yahweh? Here's what God meant, I believe. God meant that he was revealing himself to Moses not only as sustainer and provider, which would have been uh, recognized with the name Adonai, but he's introducing himself to Moses as the promise keeper, the one who was personally related to his people and would redeem them. That's not the same as Adonai. God is stressing a different part of his quality. He's saying, I'm the one who will keep my promise, and I'm the one who will be related to you because I'm going to redeem you. The name Yahweh is not just descriptive. A lot of the names in in the Bible about who God is and how God introduces himself, they're very descriptive. You know, you might have people that that you have nicknames for that are are descriptive of them. Uh, You know, uh, had a a lady at our previous church when, when my daughter Hope was was growing like crazy, uh, she started calling her Stretch. She walked by and said, hey, Stretch, uh, just because uh, she, you know, just kept growing, right? You, you probably know people that uh, you give descriptive nicknames to. Uh, well, God would introduce himself with names that would describe him, but the name Yahweh is not just descriptive. It is very personal and very relational. Personal and relational. <clears throat> a few minutes ago, I mentioned a couple of different ways this passage is outlined and organized. The first way that I'm going to mention is that God lists his actions in verses 2 through 8. God lists his actions. He lists them first by what he has done in the past and then by what he will do in the future. The first action listed in the past we've already read in verse 3, right? Uh, In the past, in verse 3, it says, I appeared. I appeared. I put this up here so I wouldn't forget, but I forgot. It happens sometimes. Uh, So if you want to look at that quote, 
Uh, you can see it came from John Hanna, a, a great theologian. Uh, but it, so when God listed in verse 3 <clears throat> all the things he has done, and he starts in the past, the first one he says is, I appeared. I appeared to whom? I appeared to the patriarchs as God Almighty. Uh, in verses 4 through 5, we get a few more in the list of what God had done in the past. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So what were the other ones? First one's, I appeared to the patriarchs as God Almighty. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, and I remembered my covenant that I had previously established generations ago. In that list, I appeared, I established, I heard, and I remembered. That is what God had done in the past. Now he makes known to Moses what he will do in the future, because he is the great I am, because he is Yahweh. In verses 6 through 8, we see more things listed. So the Lord says to, to Moses, Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I am the I am. And I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with, a, and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So in the future, we have, I will bring you out. I'll bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. Deliver you from what? From slavery, from bondage. I will redeem you. How will he redeem them? With an outstretched arm, which means by decree. Uh, back in the day when you would, when you would make a, an official statement, you would stretch out your arm and you would make a decree. You, you would say it out loud with an outstretched arm. Um, I don't really see us doing that too much these, these days, so maybe that doesn't, doesn't translate at first, but that's, that's what it means, is by decree, by decree, I'll make this happen, which is, to, which is to speak it and have it be. So I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you. He goes on to say, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I have promised. I will give you, <coughs> I will give the land to you. That's the list that God gives. We see the past. Here's what I've done in the past. Moses, you, you know this. And now, Moses, know this, what I will do in the future. The people's deliverance would become the basis of a covenantal relationship which would result in their being in the land. 
Now, there is some pretty good stuff in this, right? In this list, wouldn't you agree there's some pretty good stuff? But it gets even better. It gets even better. The second way this passage is structured, it's structured with the use of a chiasm. Amen, right? Aren't you excited about that? Maybe not at first, all right? Uh, I, was, I was with Mary when I was, um, we were out doing something, and, and I was thinking about the sermon, and, uh, and I probably was supposed to be listening to her, but I, I, I was thinking about the sermon. And, uh, and then uh, I said, wait a second. And she said, I said that like out of context. And she said, what? And I said, I think it might be a chiasm. And she said, okay. Not nearly as excited as she should have been. She was as excited as a lot of you were not when I just said that this is a chiastic structure. That should have been a loud amen. Uh, we'll, we'll give you another shot here. Uh, a, a chiasm is a literary device that uses a reversal of grammatical structures in successive phrases or clauses to create a mirror-like pattern. There we go. Amen. Now, why does this matter, and why am I, why am I getting excited about this? Uh, how does God's second statement in this passage begin and end? Look at, at verses 2 and then at the end of verse 8. How does it begin and end? I am the Lord. It starts with that. And it ends with that statement. I am Yahweh. From the first I am, God's message structurally goes out, reaches its furthest point, and then comes back in. So <clears throat> when I thought to myself when I had that epiphany, this, this, this is a, this is a, a chiasm. Uh, I got home and... Uh, and I started seeing if I was right. Uh, and so here was the chiastic structure that I came up with uh, on, uh, all by myself. Uh, it starts with, I am the Lord, and it ends with, I am the Lord. And then, as you continue to go through the statement, you'll see that each one mirrors itself. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, in verses, at the end of, of, of verse eight, 7 and 8. It says, I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see how it mirrors itself? Uh, uh, it talks about give them the land and then it says bring you into the land so we, we see how it goes out a little further uh, and then um, uh, it talks about the Egyptians hold the slaves and then it says the burden of the Egyptians again that's an idea that mirrors itself uh, and then in the middle it says I will redeem you and I will take you uh, so once I, I did it myself I thought we have this wonder, wonderful thing called the World Wide Web. Let's see if, if I'm out on a limb here or if this is something that, that Hebrew scholars uh, have, have also uh, looking at, have taken a look at. Uh, and so I found a bunch of different uh, theologians that came up with chiastic structures as well from this passage. And looking at them, I, I thought this was probably the easiest to understand and, uh, and to help see. We have an introduction and a conclusion that mirror each other. Uh, and then uh, there's a promise to Moses uh, at the beginning at the end as you continue to get to the middle of the passage there's a historical review and you see it's mirrored by another historical review and right in the middle you have promise to Israel now 
Why does that matter? The significance of recognizing a chiastic structure is that the most important point of the passage is in the middle. That's what that chiastic structure is saying, is we're working our way out to the most important thing for you to know, and then we'll work our way back. So anytime you find a, a chiastic structure, you, you look for it. Now, what's in the middle? Because the author is saying, this is the deal. This is the important thing to know. Uh, and, uh, and here, it's the promise to Israel. God worked his way to the most important information and then worked his way back from it. Uh, and so we see that, uh, uh, that uh, the promise that he makes to, the promise God makes to Israel. What is the promise that God makes to Israel? What is that promise in this passage? It is the promise to redeem them and to take them to be his people. God says, I will redeem them. I will redeem. Redeem. Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. The evil that the Israelites were needing to be delivered was their slavery to the Egyptians. God promises to purchase their freedom. But not only does he purchase their freedom, which would be amazing in and of itself, correct? Just to be free. If God says, you know what, I'm going to free you from slavery, I'm going to free you from this oppression, I'm going to free you from this evil thing, that in and of itself would be enough. But God goes a step further. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to redeem you, and then I'm going to take you for my own people. In Exodus 19.6, it says, But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's a lot more than just being freed, isn't it? That is what it means to be God's people. If you have not been redeemed by God, you do not belong to him. You do not receive the blessings of being in a relationship with him. The evil outcome you find yourself in will continue for eternity. But thank goodness, believer, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the curse of the law? Condemnation, punishment. Nobody's ever earned their salvation by keeping the law. The law has condemned every single one of us. And anytime you, you put yourself, I'm going to live by the law, you've just set yourself up for failure. God says, you don't attain righteousness from that. You just attain guilt. He says, that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. What was the price of our redemption? Christ died on the cross. That was the cost. That was the price. A lot of times we don't think sometimes we think we're, we're not very valuable right sometimes we think we're more valuable than we are <laughs> but sometimes we think we're not very valuable how much did you cost jesus on the cross i can't think of a steeper cost than that 
But that is how he purchased our redemption, by dying on a cross. Christ purchased us from the curse of the law, which is death and separation from God, for all eternity when he died on the cross. Not only have I been redeemed from the evil position I found myself in, not only have I been set free from death and hell, but God has taken me as his possession. But you are a chosen race, it says in 1 Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like God said to, to Moses about the, the children of Israel to say these words to them, I will redeem them, and then I will take them as my own possession. I will be their God. God says there's a relationship. It's not just being set free, but instead there's a relationship of, of knowing God, of being his own possession. So why was Moses frustrated, despondent, angry, accusatory towards God? Part of it is because Moses thought it was up to him. And when it didn't work out like he assumed, he was upset. But God is saying in this passage, Moses, it ain't about you, buddy. He lists all of the things that he is going to do. This is what I'm going to do, Moses. This is what I'm going to do. God would be the one to redeem his people. He never expected Moses to be the one who redeemed his people. Never expected that. He just wanted Moses to be what? Faithful. Just be faithful. There was a, a, a church where I used to live in St. Charles Parish, and I appreciated what they were trying to do, but I didn't, I didn't like how it was worded. And on the, the marquee, on the sign in front of the church, it had a question, will anyone be in heaven because of you? And I always wanted to call them up and say, not a single one. I haven't redeemed anyone. Uh, and I understood what they were trying to do. They were trying to encourage uh, evangelism, which was great. You know, that, to tell people about your faith, absolutely. Uh, God doesn't expect us to redeem people. God just wants us to be faithful. But as I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about the accusations that God received from Moses, and what Moses was saying about God, remember those accusations? Um, you must be a liar because I went and did what you said and, and, and Pharaoh didn't let the people go. Uh, God, you must not care. You have done evil to this people. Um, basically, what Moses is saying is that if, why didn't you do the right thing, God? I don't understand. I don't understand. And uh, I was thinking about that and I remembered a song uh, from Maranatha Music uh, that, uh, that my mom played all of the time uh, in, our, in our cassette player. Uh, I'll, I, don't even, I can't even do show and tell. I can't even show the kids what a cassette uh, player looks like. Uh, that, was, that was in our van and on, on long trips. She would play this Maranatha cassette all the time. And I'd be in the back going, come on, Mom. Why do we have to... We're heading all the way to San Antonio from Grand Rapids, 
and I have heard this cassette 80 times. Moms know what they're doing sometimes. And, uh, and there was this song called Trust His Heart. And maybe, you, maybe you've heard this and, and you know the chorus. The chorus goes, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't understand, trust his heart. God is giving his heart to Moses. Moses, you need to know me better. I am the I am. I am the ever-present one. I am the one who sees the end from the beginning. I am the one who is self-sufficient, self-sustaining. Everything is dependent on me, Moses, not on you. Know this about me. Moses, here's what I'm going to do. Because I am the I am, I'm going to deliver this people with a, with a mighty hand, I will, with an outstretched arm, I will decree that these people go. Don't worry about Pharaoh. Know me, Moses. Know me. Know my heart. Because God is a God who delights in redeeming people. That is the heart of God. God delights in purchasing people from the evil that is coming. Now, there was a specific uh, purpose that uh, God said, I will redeem this people. And certainly, a large part of that is I will redeem them from their oppression and slavery in Egypt. Let me ask you a question. It's going to be a harsh question. If the Israelites got freed from their oppression in Egypt, died and went to hell, who cares? Is that a true statement? If their redemption was just limited to their freedom from slavery, eventually they would all die, and eventually they'd all go to hell. God's redemption and his desire to redeem is a whole lot more than escaping slavery. You see, we have this issue, every single one of us, a little issue called sin. And a holy, righteous God said, my holiness cannot have sin in my presence. So he told Adam and Eve, if you disobey and you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like I instructed you not to, know this, you will certainly die. Do you know what happened to Adam and Eve? They died. These genealogies that we, we read, one in Genesis chapter 5, the repeated refrain after it says so-and-so lived so long, had so many kids, the repeated refrain there is, and he died. Every single one. It says in the Bible that man is, will die once, right? It's appointed unto man to die once. That is happening because of sin. But worse than simply death, which is separation from our, our, the, the immaterial part, the, the soul separated from the body, is being separated from God for all eternity. To be separate from God's mercy and grace for all eternity. The lake of fire is a real thing. And God says, 
Because of your works, this is what you have earned. This is what you have earned. That's some serious bad news, isn't it? But Jesus said, I will die in your place. I will redeem you from that, from that reality. And I'll redeem you with the price of my own death. And Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. You see, the, the law condemns. Jesus is the only one who lived it perfectly. And so he was that perfect sacrifice that could pay for sin. If I died for sin, I didn't pay for it. I just simply got what I deserved. But Jesus being perfect was that perfect sacrifice. In his perfection and righteousness, God said, this is the sacrifice that, that I will accept as payment for sin. And Christ redeemed me because of that. He redeemed me through that. We have a God who delights in redeeming. And the way we know it is that he sent his only son, the very son of God, to die in our place. That's how much God values our redemption. But God also says, I want to redeem you, and I'm going to make you into my own people. Elevating us just from the release of slavery, the release of the, of the penalty, and God says, I'm going to elevate you beyond neutral. You're going to be my people. Just as he said to the Israelites, I will take you. God says, I'm not going to just redeem you. I'm going to take you to be my own people, my very own possession. That is the heart of God. And when we have trials, when we have difficulties, when we have things that we don't understand, why would God allow this to happen? Uh, doesn't God know? Doesn't God care? Uh, is he powerless to do something? That's when we go back to the heart of God and we say, now who is God? I can't trace his hand right now. I don't know why this is, this is happening, but I'm going to trust God's heart. God is Adonai. He is all-powerful. But he's also still the great I Am. And he sent a Savior to save us. Amen. Know the heart of God. Heavenly Father, sometimes we, we can think the same thoughts that Moses thought. We become frustrated with, with a task in front of us. We become frustrated with our own limitations. Or our eyes can, can, can be on the difficulty instead of trusting your heart. Father, thank, thankful, so thankful that you didn't just strike Moses down after his accusations against you, but you showed him your heart. You showed him who you were, and, uh, and you show us in who you are as well. Father, thank you that our salvation is not based on our ability, just like the deliverance of Israel wasn't based on Moses' ability, but instead it's dependent on you. Father, we do want to be faithful uh, in, in obeying, obeying your word. We want to be faithful in, in sharing your plan of salvation. Um, but, uh, Father, we're glad that it's not dependent upon us, but instead it's dependent upon you. Father, I couldn't save myself, not if I had a thousand years, uh, but you saved me through Jesus Christ when he died for my sins and rose again, proving that death and sin had been conquered. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.